Hello, I want to welcome you to a God is Just Like Jesus podcast. This morning, we're going to talk about Peter and expectations in following Jesus. And I hope that this will be very encouraging for you and you'll get a lot out of it. You can find our book, God is Just Like Jesus, on Amazon. You can find the podcast if you search for God is Just Like Jesus on Pandora, Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon Music. And lastly, if you want to email me at Chris at God is Just Like Jesus, we have Zoom online studies and discussions over the material looking at Jesus's goodness so that we can increase our confidence in him. All right, today I want to look at Peter and I want to take some time to wrestle with Peter's ideas for himself versus Jesus calling him to follow him and really wanting him to have the best possible life. Okay, the first thing I want to start with is there are essentially four arguments that's recorded in Scripture about the disciples and Peter in particular arguing about who's the great. First one is after the Mount of Transfiguration. And by the way, I'll put the scripture verses in the show notes that you can look at if you want the exact chapter and verse for these things. So the first time they wrestle with who's the greatest, it's after the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John have seen Jesus transfigured and his earthly identity is shed and they see who he is in terms of his divinity. When they come down, they walk to Capernaum and on the road, they're arguing about who is the greatest. The second time it happens, James and John, and they get their mother in on the deal. They ask Jesus, they like, hey, Jesus, we want to sit on your left and your right in your kingdom, taking the highest positions over the other disciples sitting next to Jesus. A third time it that it's recorded, again, it probably happened many times, but at the Last Supper, if you combine Luke 22 and John 13, you'll see that Jesus gives communion And after communion, they start arguing about who's the greatest once again. And I combine John 13 with that because I think it's right after communion and this argument breaking out that Jesus then, you know, gets on his hands and knees and washes their feet right in the context of their sin, their pride, their failure, their competition. So all these arguments about who's the greatest, what's really going on? What's this about? And how does this relate to us in our lives? Well, I want you to think about this because I think it touches all of us. It's that E word, right? Expectation. And we have to wrestle with what's our expectation of ourselves, what's our expectation of our lives. But what I want to wrestle with is as we begin following Jesus and that process expands out over months, years, decades, a lifetime, what's our expectation of Jesus? What's our expectation of God? And a lot of times we have expectations, but we're not verbalizing them. And it's really important for us to identify, hey, what are my unspoken expectations of Jesus? And then be able to wrestle with them. Is this realistic? Is this reasonable? Is this something I'm asking about? Am I getting permission for this? And eradicating kind of that non-spoken arena of our expectations of him. So while that settles on you, ask yourself, what other parts of Peter's life do you think his expectations really are churning and going and driving his decisions and feelings more so than, say, following Jesus? So I want you to remember that event. It's in Matthew 16. It's right around verse 21, where 
Jesus, for the third time at least, maybe more, he tells the disciples, and this is pretty far along in his three, three and a half year public ministry, he tells the disciples for the third time at least, I'm going to die. And this is not what they're expecting. I'm going to die. This needs to happen. It's the Father's plan. It's my plan. This is going to happen. Well, when he tells them this fact, Peter actually takes him aside after he said this, and he begins to rebuke Jesus and says, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And and he really gets in Jesus' face. And if you really read that passage and you pray through it, it's amazing to see Peter taking the master aside and rebuking him and telling him, you're wrong. This is not going to happen. This is not the way it should go. And then it says Jesus turns his back to Peter. And this might be in one of the other gospels when you've got to combine uh, the other gospel accounts. And he looks at the other disciples and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, Peter's not Satan, but he's saying you're being influenced by man's thinking and Satan's thinking. You need to get influenced by what I'm telling you, where this thing's going. As he's looking at the other disciples, he's rebuking Peter. And we're like, oh no, that's so intense. You know, get behind me, Satan. And he says, you have in mind the things of men and not of God. So he rebukes Peter. And you have to ask yourself for a minute, hey, what is going on here? You know, it's just such an intense situation. We need to understand this, right? But what we find out, if you process this, if you if you kind of take in the whole of the Bible, you understand what time period was about and all sorts of things. I think what we start to wrestle with is, what do you think Peter's expectations of Jesus are? You might want to answer that question, hit pause, and come back. So what I think Peter's expectation is, is that Jesus, you're going to do X, Y, and Z. And that namely is, we're the Jewish people. God's called us to the land. We sinned, but now, you know, we've kind of returned. Some of our people are, have not returned to you and some have. We're under the Roman oppression. We want you to kick the Romans out and make us our own nation and make us the head and not the tail. And so Peter and the other disciples, even though Jesus is wrestling with spiritual heart level subjects and he's wanting to free us from sin, he's wanting to free them and the people from sin and and bring them out of that kind of slavery into freedom, the disciples, their expectation is on the physical world. Like, yeah, 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 we'll do the holiness thing. We'll do the purity thing and grow in goodness. But right now, we need you to kick the Romans out. So I think Peter has tremendous expectations about what Jesus and God need to do for them. And so when Jesus starts saying, hey, I'm going to die, and this is how I'm going to conquer sin, and I'm going to offer freedom to everyone who wants to come to me, Peter's like, this is not my plan. He goes, this is not, no, you're going to go to the top. We're going to take on the Pharisees. After that, we're taking on Rome. We have people that will fight. You can do miracles. You can stop the storms on the sea. You can turn water to wine. You have the power to overthrow Rome. And guess what? I'm going to be your number one guy. I mean, these other guys, they're kind of jokers, these other 11. And I'm not sure about Judas at all. But me, I'm your guy. And I'm going to go to the top with you. And so I think Peter had tremendous expectations 
about what Jesus should do, how he should do it, and what Peter's position was. And so when Jesus starts talking about dying, that's destroying. It's cutting right across everything Peter expected of God to do, right? So the question to you and me is, what are you expecting God to do? What am I expecting God to do? Is it in line with his will or are we running off in our own direction, kind of creating our own reality or wanting to? And we need to stop and pause and say, Lord, I know you want abundant life for me, but am I imagining that the correct way? Or do you have something else? Because he wants to help us. He wants to give us abundant life, but he knows really how to get there. So what's interesting about this whole passage is that it reveals that Peter's arguing about who's the greatest, and that argument has a lot to do with being really close to Jesus and his expectations of what Jesus is going to do, right? So these things are all connected, and it becomes really clear that Peter wants to be in the driver's seat. Peter wants to be in control, but don't we all? Don't I? See, that's what I'm processing in my life. What are the things I'm holding on to to control so strongly that I'm actually resisting following Jesus. This is what day number 12 is all about in the God is just like Jesus book. You know, we really explore this whole passage more, but I wanted to reference that right here in case you want to dig a little deeper. My point is we all have an agenda for Jesus. And that is often while we're frustrated with God. And if I'm really going to be honest with you, that's why I'm angry at God sometimes. I'm like, God, you're not doing what you should be doing. When I'm saying that, I'm really talking about, hey, I've got these expectations and the way I'm interpreting abundant life has to do X, Y, and Z. But I'm not stopping to say, what is true abundant life? What does it really mean to have your heart full and to have peace and to have hope and to have strength and all the things that you see versus maybe some of the things I see? Well, if this person would just do that, or if my kids would just behave this way, or if my wife would just do this, then life would be great. If my job would just offer me more money and we need to stop and say, those may be fine things, but is it what Jesus, is it his top priorities? And certainly his priorities are to provide for us. He wants us to be fed. He wants us to have the finances we need. He wants us to have security. All of those are true. But are we stopping to even consider what he wants? And the question that, that comes up in my heart is, God, why don't you just and then fill in the blank? And what it represents is my expectations versus trusting him. So... Let's ask ourselves: are there any other things in Peter's life where this manifests, right? These two paths, as it were, of course, they overlap a lot. So you might just hit pause again and come back, ask yourself, is there anywhere else where Peter's really exerting his demand for control and he's really resisting following Jesus, right? So, so hit pause and come back if you want to identify anything else. The next one I wanted to highlight is, hey, what happens in the garden when the soldiers capture Jesus? Do you remember that? What does Peter do? And specifically, there's an event in John 18.10 that you'll want to kind of like wrestle with a little bit. So what happens is the Roman soldiers capture Jesus. Judas betrays him and leads them to where he is. 
Jesus gets captured. What does Peter do? Well, he whips out his sword. And remember, he hacks the guy's ear off. And you think, what is going on here? Well, quite frankly, Peter's ready to like pull the swords out and let's battle. And he just misses the guy's neck and happens to graze the side of his head and chop his ear off. And it's really this manifestation of Peter saying, I want my will to be done here. And and I still want you to conquer the Romans. I still want to go to the top with you. And he's acting out of that again, instead of submitting to Jesus and really following Jesus and said, oh yeah, you said you were going to die. And you've been telling us about that tonight. And I guess this is the moment. And so I need to somehow do what you want to do. And so there's this battle inside Peter, but it's another manifestation of the story that's happening where he's just really wrestling for control. It's very hard for us to let go of our expectations for Jesus and God and to follow Jesus. But the Holy Spirit can help us and he does help us and that's his job. So now you can understand the context of what Jesus was saying to Peter a little bit later in John 21. After Jesus has died, he's raised from the dead. He meets the disciples twice in the closed room. They they really figure out, wow, Jesus is really alive. And then later, Peter goes out fishing. And I'm just going to say another plug for the book. If you haven't read the book, spend, man, the crux of the whole book is, is day 17 where Peter has, he's quit. He's denied the Lord. He's frustrated. He's out fishing. He's doing the only thing he knows how to do without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus shows up on the shore. Remember that in John 21? It's an amazing passage. Peter's He's trashed and depressed by denying Jesus. He's out fishing. His expectations for Jesus have been crushed. And then they figure out a little bit later after the second catch of fish, which is so critical because there was a first catch years ago. But what they figure out is, oh, that's Jesus on the shore. And they get into the shore and Jesus cooks them. He has a fire going and he has some of his own fish and he cooks them a meal. And then we remember he breaks the shame off Peter with these three questions. Do you love me? And he he needs Peter to say, Lord, you know that I love you. And he he helps Peter walk out of shame. And then what's the last thing Jesus says to Peter? Do you remember it in this uh, interchange? He basically says to Peter in this chapter, follow me. It's you've wrestled with your expectation. You've wrestled with me. I want you to follow me first and foremost. And I'm going to take care of your needs as well. And I'm going to take care of, you know, Peter was probably married and had a family. Um, He goes, but you need to follow me. Let's get that straight. So how about you? Is there anything you need to let go of? expectation-wise, to follow the Lord. And I'll just say an additional point here briefly. When Peter was, when, when Jesus was talking to Peter and saying, Peter, do you love me? He's breaking shame off Peter. And I want to ask you, how about you? Is there anything you need to stop beating yourself up for? And you need to simply say, Lord, I love you. I know, number one, you love me, but number two, I loved you back. Do you need to say, I failed and I sinned, but number one, you love me first and you've always loved me. And number two, I love you. So take a moment and if there's anything you feel you failed, you've sinned, you've screwed up, you hurt your family, you hurt 
your husband, your wife, your kids, yourself, man, hand it over to him. Just like Peter needed to let go of the shame that he felt failing him and denying the Lord uh, before the Romans and before the slave girl and denying Jesus, right? That was that was awful for Peter. So check with yourself and the Holy Spirit and, and say, Lord, these are things I, I need to say sorry for and just let go of. And then just understand you love me. And this is what defeats the devil, right? First, we don't go first. Jesus goes first. Jesus loves us, number one. Number two, we love Jesus back. And number three, all of that, those first two steps happen in the middle of our imperfect lives of failure and sin and successes, right? Life's just a mixed bag. But that one, two, Jesus loves us and we love him back. That happens in the middle of imperfect lives. So once Jesus has broken off that shame from Peter, what Jesus essentially says to him at that point is, follow me, feed my sheep. But to feed my sheep, you got to follow me. He goes, Peter, put your plans aside and follow me. I, Peter, am in the driver's seat. He goes, it would have been way worse for you, Peter. And I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but what I think Jesus is saying to Peter is it would have been way worse for you and everyone you love and the entire world if we'd done it your way and according to your expectations and I didn't die on the cross to free everyone from sin, right? Peter, I know it's not what you wanted. You had a whole different vision, but take a look and see it's way better that we did it my way because now everyone can be forgiven in the world. Jesus is the Messiah of the world. He goes, my way is the best for you, your family, those you love, the entire world for everyone. So my question to you this morning is, what are you holding on that's your expectation that you really think, it, it, this is better than what you have in mind, God. This is better than what you have in mind, Jesus. Turn to him, be willing to lay that down and say, Lord, you're God. You're brilliant. Not only do you have power to heal the sick and calm the storm, but you're brilliant. What is your plan and help me follow you? Now, I, I want to wrap this up and I want to just tell you, this is also the big picture of the entire Old Testament, right? Because I just want to put this in context. He was telling the Israelites in, in the Old Testament, he goes, come out of polytheism, right? This is what he said to Abraham, but to the Israelites, their whole journey. Come out of this cultural kind of air where everybody's worshiping many gods or they're into all their different philosophies, right? Might not be a religious um uh, belief system, but it's a philosophy, right? And he goes, I want you to follow Yahweh. That was what he said to Abraham. That's what he said to the Israelites. He goes, I want you to follow me alone to the exclusion of all of the gods. And people get upset with that and are like, well, you know, what's, what's the big deal? You know, why is God exclusive? Why is he calling us only to himself through Jesus. And in the Old Testament, why was he calling to only himself in, in, as they understood him, as they knew him in Yahweh? And it's because God knows that following himself is the very best life for each and every one of us. You can follow other gods or other philosophies like atheism or stoicism or whatever philosophy you want, but you'll never find your truest self and your fullest life outside of him. He is the one that helps us find our lives, right? And there's that tough passage that's where Jesus says, we think it's tough. It's not. 
He says, look, lose your life for my sake and you'll find it. But if you find your life on your own, you're actually going to lose your life. And what Jesus is saying is he's not saying, I want you to be miserable or I want you to give up everything you love, whatever. What he's saying is, I love you. You don't understand it. You're like a sheep. You don't have the ability to find your life. You're really not smart enough. You're not talented enough. Uh, he goes, you don't have the, I mean, we think we're brilliant and we have amazing perspective. He goes, I can help you find your deepest life with the most abundant life, the fullness in your heart, the connections that you're wanting in relationships. But you got to come to me, right? Because I am the life. You partner with me and you're going to, you're going to be able to find your deepest self, your deepest life. But on your own, you can try that and you can follow the other gods, the other philosophies. But those gods, those philosophies, they are going to ruin you and they're going to ruin your body and they're going to ruin your mind. And I just don't want that for you. And so I just wanted to comment that the entire Old Testament is God saying to Abraham, come out of polytheism, come out of Ur of the Chaldeans and come to this new land I'm going to give you. I don't want you to follow me alone because I care about you and I care about your children. But if you stay in kind of the confusion of worshiping all the different gods, you never know what's right and what's wrong and what, what wears up and wears down. You just live in confusion. And then you can see at some point later in Israel's history, after all the kings have kind of done their thing and the people, they turn away from God and they worship all these other gods, Baal, Chemosh, Ashtoreth, um, Molech. And you can see the damage that it does to them individually as people, their wives, their children, and to them as a nation. And you just read 2 Kings 23. It is an epic chapter to just show you what happens when people abandon the Lord and just try to do it on their own and they end up following all the gods, right? And that's called polytheism or all the philosophies. So God knows he's the best for each and every one of us. And that's why he He called to the Israelites in the Old Testament, follow me alone. Let me just summarize this right quick. The four times Peter and the others argue about which of them is the greatest It's really connected to their expectations to have a national victory over Rome through Jesus when the real problem was slavery to sin and the damage in their own heart. People's, uh, Peter is competing with the others to fulfill his expectations, and he's really trying to control Jesus from dying and, and to get Jesus to do what he thinks needs to be done. And then you see this manifesting again, the four arguments about who's the greatest, him trying to control Jesus, and then him chopping off the guy's ear to protect and rescue Jesus and to keep promoting his own agenda. That's really what's going on. And then finally, Peter just totally fails and denies Jesus. But the beautiful thing is that's not the end of the story. John 21 and the rest of his life, Jesus basically says, Peter, let's get the shame off you. Now follow me. Let your expectations go and follow me. And the Holy Spirit can do that for each and every one of us that we have these lives in the Spirit that are really, really good and rich. So in my life, this is what I'm processing. I'm trying to identify my expectations, really a lot of which can be unspoken, and to figure out, Lord, what are you saying? And then Holy Spirit, give me the power to just lean in to what you want to do, because that's the best life for me and for everyone, for our children. It's not always easy. 
get rid of the idealism that says, oh, I'm just going to be floating on cloud nine, you know, and it's just going to be easy life. I'm going to have all this money. It doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be easy all the time. Sometimes it will be easy, but it's going to be the best possible life where we really live true to ourselves and connected with the Lord and one another. So now you know why I'm creating this book series called God is Just Like Jesus. The first one is published. The next two are in process. The best way I know to let go of my visceral expectations of Jesus and God and to trust him, which means to follow him, is to see Jesus's raw goodness. So book one highlights Jesus's goodness and and that he never rejects us when we've said yes to him, when we're his followers. He never rejects us when we fail in sin. We have security and connection with him. You got to say yes to him. We need to repent. We need to turn to Jesus from all the other gods. But when we do, we then need to understand, hey, we're not Pharisees or Sadducees. We're disciples. And the disciples screwed up a lot, but they were his. And that security enables us to have confidence in him. And then that enables us to pray with real confidence. And then we need to look back over time and say, hey, where'd you answer a prayer? And then identify our our when God came through stories, right? And then fight with those and say, hey, since you answered that prayer and you came through then, you can help me with my problems today. And that is the one, two, three, four step process that I talk about in some of these books. So that's book one. So I want to say digest and savor those days one through 17 in book one to understand his goodness. And then that will enable you to See and let go of some of your expectations and actually trust him and follow him more. But the only way I know how to follow him more is to see his goodness in event after event after event. And the more of those you're familiar with, the more you can say, oh, man, he is good. I want to do it his way. All right. So, Lord, um, Jesus, I just love the fact that you helped Peter let go of his agenda and to follow you because you knew that would be best for Peter, all those people that he loved, and your kingdom. And you released the gospel through the nations and released peace and forgiveness and joy because he said yes to you and followed you instead of just fighting the Romans and pursuing his own expectation. Help us all do the same. Amen. Amen.